Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35. Two weeks ago, when we were last in Genesis, do you remember what the scene was? Do you remember the the tension that was left hanging at the end of the last text, Genesis 34? You remember Jacob renamed by God at Peniel, renamed Israel. Jacob, now Israel, had returned from his exile to the far north. He had returned with a great company, with a family, household, servants, flocks, and herds, though when he had gone into that exile, it had just been him with his staff. But he'd returned, he'd been reconciled, Against all his fears, he'd been reconciled nonetheless to his brother Esau, whom he had wronged in the past. Life seemed good. He had purchased some land outside the city that came to be known as Shechem, in central Canaan. But then disaster had struck at Shechem, because the prince of the land, Hamor, had a son named Shechem. And this son violated Jacob's daughter, Dinah. Then he wanted to marry her. He wanted to woo and marry Jacob's daughter after forcing himself upon her. We saw two weeks ago that the sons of Jacob answered this marriage proposal deceitfully. They profaned the covenant of circumcision by using it as a trick to get the upper hand over their enemies, and over those who would violate their sister. But Simeon and Levi, particularly, two of Leah's sons, full brothers to Dinah, they particularly, in their reaction and in their deceit, they exercised cruel anger, and they, they slew an entire town of men and took all the plunder, women, children, flocks, herds, for themselves. Jacob had objected to this, and strongly. He had, he had expressed his fear that this would cause the other Canaanites to attack him and destroy him and all that he had. But Simeon and Levi could only see their anger and the cause for their anger. They said, should they have treated our sister like a harlot, like a prostitute? That's where everything was left hanging. The end of chapter 34. Jacob is afraid of being wiped out by the Canaanites in revenge for what his sons had deceitfully done and cruelly done. So we were left with Simeon and Levi's actions and Jacob's fears. But now, whereas God really hadn't come up directly in chapter 34, God steps in directly again. And he tells Jacob what to do. So I'm simply titling this sermon from chapter 35, Israel's Journeys continue. We will see Jacob, now Israel, continue in his walk with God and in his literal journeys in the land of Canaan. And I think the big idea here that we will see unfold is that renewed consecration to God brings assurance in the midst of trouble. Renewed consecration to God brings assurance in the midst of trouble. Let's unfold the text a bit. First of all, I, I've, I've made a very simple outline of the text this time, though I could have, I guess, gone in, into much more detail, but I kept it simple. I've just divided it into two parts. And the first part is verses 1 through 15, where we see fresh consecration and assurance. Fresh consecration and assurance. Let's just read verses 1 through 4 to begin with. Verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. And purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. 
Jacob hid them under, under the cherubim tree that was near Shechem. God tells Jacob to go to Bethel, which isn't far from where he is at Shechem. It's a little bit south, in the central hill country, in the center of Canaan. But you remember how, as God says here, God had appeared to Jacob at Bethel when Jacob was on his way out of the promised land. God had appeared to Jacob in grace, not even mentioning on that occasion all Jacob's past sins and failures, He appeared to him in grace and affirmed his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and now with Jacob of all people. This was the occasion of what we call Jacob's ladder, that staircase between earth and heaven. The dream Jacob had of the angels of God ascending and descending on this staircase and God at the top speaking to Jacob and giving him his his gracious promises. That was the significance of Bethel. And Jacob had named the place Bethel, house of God, because he awoke from his sleep and he said, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. How awesome is this place, he had said. He had said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. At Bethel, on his way out of the promised land, Jacob had taken a stone, the stone he had put under his head to sleep, He took that stone, set it up for a pillar, poured oil on the top of it, and he made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, a place of worship. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Well, now it's interesting, Jacob has returned to Canaan. He hasn't returned to Bethel yet. So God reminds him to complete what he vowed. Jacob, at this point, is focused on his fears of what the people of the land might do to him because of what his sons have done. And Jacob himself was, as we said last time, um, He seems to have been guilty of a lot of passivity in the whole situation, too. But Jacob has been focused on that. And God says to Jacob, the important thing, Jacob, is that you complete your worship of me, which you vowed. Go to Bethel. Make an altar there, he says, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. This gives clarity to Jacob. The important thing is not what people may do to me right now. The important thing is, do I have God on my side? Am I devoted to God properly? Am I properly fulfilling what I have vowed to the Lord? Am I properly consecrated to God? That's my greatest need. Jacob sees the the problems that that are just ripping his family apart. And With God's word coming to him again, he says, oh, that's what I need to do. So he tells his household, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Now, we who are not used to um, the world of that time, the idolatrous world of that time, we we may be surprised. I thought Jacob's household worshiped the Lord. They had foreign gods with them. Of course, that was the common way of the times. And uh, Jacob's family, his relatives up north from whence he had gotten his wives, they were idolaters. And you recall, what had Rachel done? When, uh, that is Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, what had she done when they had fled from her father, his uncle Laban, to come back to Canaan? Rachel had stolen her father's idols, her father's gods, and then hid them in a a camel's saddle. There was some irony in the story at that point that uh, Laban's gods could be kidnapped and shipped off. So Rachel had some idols. Perhaps she stole them because she thought, oh, the Lord is good, and yes, he's been with us and for us, but we could use some help from dad's gods too, and, and... 
Maybe we can deprive him of some magic power too. Um, get his gods on our side. This was just the thinking of the times. Have as many gods on your side as possible. As many deities as you can. But Jacob realizes, no, the Lord alone, Yahweh alone is God. All others are idols, fake gods. So he tells his household, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. So he's speaking of a, a purification process, a consecration process to prepare to meet with God at the house of God at Bethel. And it, it says not only do the people hand over the, their idols to Jacob, they also give him the rings that were in their ears. Now, I suppose if someone is against jewelry, they might take this and run with it. <laughs> Here's the text against earrings. Well, that's not what this is about. <laughs> Just compare the earlier Genesis text about the rings that Abraham's servant gave to Rebekah. Um, can't support no jewelry from Scripture. That's not the point here either. The point is, um, somehow these were connected to idolatrous worship, probably. In fact, John Currid comments, um, he says, No doubt these earrings are amulets bearing images of foreign gods. Such things are well known from antiquity, from ancient times. It was believed that jewelry in that form had magical deterrent power. So there was a lot of superstition. People wanted to hedge their bets. Yes, the Lord is our God. He's our, even our primary God, but we, we want this magical protection from other sources too. Jacob says, we're done with that. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. We need to get rid of everything else. So they take these things, these idols, these foreign gods, as he calls them, um, and these, these rings that were in their ears, verse 4, and Jacob hid them, he buried them apparently, under the terebinth or, or oak tree that was near Shechem. We, we see a similar process, um, before I get back to that tree near Shechem, we see a similar process of preparing to meet with God in various places, especially in the Old Testament, don't we? Um, not only getting rid of the foreign gods, but he talks about purifying yourselves, changing your garments. Um, makes me think of Sinai. When the people got to Sinai under Moses and they prepared to meet with God and God gave them three days, well, two days really, leading up to the third day, in which to purify themselves, even in outward ways. And this, this symbolized their need for holiness as they approached God, as he would speak to them from the mountain. Scripture knows nothing of, of approaching God casually, as, in a come-as-you-are sort of way. Now, in God's grace, we come as we are for cleansing, but we cannot come as we are in the sense of being casual, in the sense of being unprepared, thoughtless in approaching God. This is all over Scripture, so it's worth noting here. This terebinth tree that was near Shechem, this is, is interesting that it points out exactly where this was. This is likely the same place mentioned in Genesis 12, where God had appeared to Abram, and Abram had worshipped there when he first entered the land of Canaan. <clears throat> uh, in Genesis 12, 6, it's called the oak, or the terebinth of Morah. Um, it was a place at Shechem, it says. And that is where Abram first called on the name of the Lord, as it's recorded in the land of Canaan. So Jacob is also sort of retracing the steps of his grandfather's faith here, in the same place even. It's also interesting, if you turn with me to Joshua 24, Joshua 24, when the people of Israel come into the land to conquer the Canaanites in the days of Joshua, once they've conquered the land, Joshua takes them back to this very same spot where Jacob had, had his people, his household, bury their idols. And Joshua has some words for the Israelites of his day 
on this very spot. Notice the similarities. Joshua 24, verse 22. This is after Joshua had given this famous speech that you need to make up your minds which gods you're going to serve, whether it's the idols your fathers worshipped beyond the river or the idols uh, in, in the land of Canaan. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, that passage. But the people said, no, we'll serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 22. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. <clears throat> this is a covenant we're renewing here. Verse 23. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. Sound familiar? And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. The same place where Jacob had told his household to purify themselves before they went up to Bethel. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Seems to be like the terebinth, the tree that keeps being talked about here in the same area. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. What's my point in pointing all this out? Not just an interesting feature of geography, but just the point that the text makes over and over. The Old Testament makes the point that God's people keep having to return to full consecration because they keep accumulating idols generation after generation. The idols keep sneaking back in, the foreign gods. And we cannot assume that we're just ready to meet with God and receive his blessings. We have to examine ourselves to be sure we have no other objects of worship in the corners of our lives. We must be sure as we approach God that we really are wholeheartedly seeking him. Without other gods on the side. Well, we continue in verse 5, verses 5 through 8. As I said, I've titled this, Israel's Journeys Continue. Verse 5, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, meaning God of the house of God. <laughs> El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth, a name that has to do with weeping, mourning. Notice, God first told Jacob and his household what they needed to do to seek him. Then as they followed through on that, God made sure that against all odds, no one tried to get vengeance on them for what had happened at Shechem. God was well able to protect his vulnerable people. <laughs> and Though in reality, the Canaanites, that they made up their mind, could have easily, humanly speaking, wiped out Jacob and his tribe. God sent a terror among them. Apparently they heard of these wild men who had get, tricked everyone into getting circumcised and then killed all the men systematically. And they said, oh, we don't want to mess with them. Leave them alone. That was God's doing, though, as it points out. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Again, what the sons of Jacob had done was not right. It was a, an evil and vast overreaction, wrong reaction, um, because of what really had, had uh, been, happened to their sister. So God is not excusing what they did. Later, later their father Jacob will pronounce um, lack of blessing, 
um, pronounced woe upon Simeon and Levi for what they did at Shechem. And yet, God has a plan for his people. He will not allow them to be wiped out. Now, it mentions here also Deborah, Rebekah's nurse. Remember, Rebekah is Jacob's mother. Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. Apparently, she was well-beloved by Jacob and his family. But what is Rebekah's nurse doing with them? Shouldn't she be with Isaac, where Rebekah had been? Well, um, this woman, who was Rebekah's wet nurse, who had accompanied, accompanied Rebekah to Canaan in the first place, when Rebekah had married Isaac, Genesis 24, um, Perhaps that may indicate that um, that, that uh, this woman Deborah had been sent to Jacob when he was still up north. Seems to indicate that. Maybe that was when Rebecca died. Maybe when she died, her nurse came with the news and stayed with Jacob. We don't know the whole story here, but what we can tell is that she was well beloved and she was very advanced in age. But it was a big blow, nonetheless, when she passed away. And so she was buried below an oak, under an oak below Bethel. And they named the place because of the weeping on her account. Go to verse 9, and we'll read through verse 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it, and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. You say, isn't all this pretty repetitive? Hadn't all this happened before? Yes. It's for emphasis. Again, Jacob names the place Bethel, house of God, because again, God had appeared to him there. And again, God had reemphasized, yes, your old name was Jacob, and it reflected your old nature of a deceiver, a trickster, But remember, your name is now Israel. I'm making you a new man. One who strives with men and with God and prevails. And God repeats his promises to Jacob. And the way he words it here um, is is very similar, almost exact, to what God had told Abraham in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Just like in Genesis 17, here God calls himself God Almighty, emphasizing his almighty power to fulfill his promises. And just as in Genesis 17, he emphasizes not only a nation coming from Abraham, now Jacob, but a company of nations or a multitude of nations. And he emphasizes a royal dynasty coming. Kings shall come from your own body. And he emphasizes the land. The promised land. And so, as it says in verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. Words are that way, I think, to, um, to remind us that in finally returning to Bethel and fulfilling his vows, Jacob's journey from Padan Aram was truly complete. <clears throat> Now Jacob had come back to where he had um, encountered God in the first place. And he'd come back and fulfilled his vows of worship. Now, what happens next? If this were a Hollywood movie, we might expect that this is, ah, this is the nice ending You know, in this long story of Jacob, there's been all this conflict, all this trouble. Jacob fearing for his life as he comes back to encounter Esau, but that all worked out. Then there were some more troubles, but God smoothed it over and and protected them. And now Jacob is back where he started. 
He's worshipped, he is fully consecrated to God in worship. The idols are gone. So now we're done with the story. Everything's good. <laughs> well, that might make a good ending to a movie, but Jacob's, Israel's sojournings here on this earth are not over, and his troubles are not over, just because he is consecrated to his God. We encounter the next part of the text, the second and last part, verses 16 through 29. Because after fresh consecration and assurance, now we find, in Jacob's story, we find fresh trouble and mourning, weeping. First of all, verses 16 through 21. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which probably means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of the right hand. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, the tower of the flock. So they were on the road to Ephrath, which is defined later as Bethlehem. Um, they don't get there yet. In fact, from other information in 1 Samuel, which talks about where Rachel's tomb was, um, they were still about 12 miles away from Bethlehem, probably, when Rachel went into hard labor. Now, this is kind of introduced abruptly. We didn't even know Rachel was pregnant again from the story. But she's in labor now, and it's hard labor. And this is in a day when death because of childbirth can be far too common. Remember who Rachel is. She's Jacob's favorite wife. Not just because he's just naturally capricious, but because she was the, the one woman he wanted to marry in the first place. Remember that? So it's Rachel, his darling wife, the one he'd fallen in love with in Padan Aram and worked so hard to get, twice as hard as he should have had to work. Rachel dies. And she dies in despair, apparently. Her, someone tries to encourage her as she's dying. You, you've born a son. In fact, this was an answer to Rachel's earlier prayer when Joseph had been born to her. She asked, she said, may God add to me yet another son. Now that prayer is finally answered, but it's answered along with her own death. And she calls the boy as she's breathing her last, son of my sorrow, and she dies. What a sad story. You have to feel for Jacob, now Israel. You know, people are very hard on him, obviously. Um, and he, he had real weaknesses. In the story of Joseph that's coming up, Joseph and his brothers, people point out, Jacob exercised all this favoritism toward the son of Rachel, Joseph, and later toward Benjamin also as Rachel's son. But isn't it somewhat understandable? Jacob cherished the boys he had gotten from his dear wife who had died young <laughs> and who had died in despair. But Jacob does not want Rachel's despair to have the last word upon this boy. He changes, immediately changes the name from son of my sorrow to son of the right hand, Benjamin. It's ironic that scripture later notes a lot of left-handed or even ambidextrous Benjamite warriors. <laughs> Ehud is one of those. He's uh, a left-handed son of the right hand. Um, but the right hand sometimes refers to the south. And so some people see here, oh, Benjamin was born on a southward journey. And he was born south of all his brothers. Where they were born, they were born up north in Padan Aram. He was born in Canaan. But the predominant meaning of the right hand was the place of highest favor, honor, and power. 
Benjamin was the youngest son of Israel's favorite wife. And Israel is pronouncing his son Benjamin as uh, occupying a place of great favor and honor. It's interesting also that this is the only time Jacob named one of his sons. Every other time we find his wives doing the naming. Now he takes a special interest to make sure this boy has a proper name. But Israel, I don't mean to be um, casual or crass about it, but we might say Israel cannot catch a break. <laughs> Rachel's just died. This is a huge blow. He has to bury her along the road, not even in the family tomb. And now look, look what happens in the next verse, verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. What is going on in this family? Well, uh, Richard Belcher puts it this way. He says, there may be several reasons for this act, what Reuben did. He might have been afraid that after the death of Rachel, her servant Bilhah would supplant his mother Leah as the chief wife. He also might have been trying to seize leadership of the family. This isn't the only time we read in scripture of people sleeping with someone else's concubine to usurp them in some way. Abner did that um, trying to, to um, gain prominence over Saul's son Ishbosheth. Absalom did that. He lay with his father David's concubines when he was usurping the throne. There may have been pure lust involved here too, but it seems like there were other implications of this act as well. Once again in Genesis, an oldest son shows himself to be a profane man and rejected from the line of messianic promise as a result. Cain, Ishmael, Esau, now Reuben. The oldest son shows himself disqualified from the line of promise. First Chronicles 5, verses 1 through 2, tell us what happened as a result of, uh, what happened eventually as a response from, from Israel to what Reuben, his son, had done. 1 Chronicles 5.1, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. That's what 1 Chronicles 5 tells us. Reuben seems to have been grasping after power and he actually lost what he could have had as a result. But imagine living in this family, this tight-knit group in one sense. They travel around together. They, uh, they ha it has to be them against the world, basically. And yet there's all this infighting and treachery and just vileness sometimes. Did God make a mistake in choosing this family as the ones through whom he would bless all nations? <laughs> no, of course not. But it's all of grace. And God's grace is going to have to do a lot to this family to change them. And Genesis doesn't want to paint a pretty picture for us. Genesis wants to, us to see the, the true but bleak picture of this family the way they really were. Because yes, the book of Genesis will end on a wonderful note of grace and forgiveness and deliverance from famine. God will preserve Israel and his family to become the nation of Israel. To them, the Christ will come. But it won't be because they were such great folks. Well, enough about Reuben for now. We read on. It now, it now notes that, that the sons of Jacob, their number is complete. Now they are 12. End of verse 24. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, 
Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Now, of course, it just told us Benjamin was actually born later, not in Padan Aram. But this is just a summary statement that most of them were born up north. Ever after this, um, that number 12 will symbolize the whole Israel of God, whether it's the 12 tribes or later the 12 apostles. You see that those two things even come together in, in the last two chapters of the Bible. Now we get to verse 27, and there's another death. Uh, now, it's a death that many people expected to happen long before it did, but now it's finally come. It's Isaac's death. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. If you add up the years, Isaac's death at 180 probably happened after Joseph had already been sold into slavery, by the way. But this section of Genesis is being wrapped up. The Toledoth, the generations of Isaac. We'll see in the next chapter, it has a brief section on Esau, and then the chapter after that, it goes into the story of Joseph. Uh, so so this, if this seems a little random, like things are thrown together, it's because everything's being wrapped up in this section of Genesis. Uh, an era is coming to an end, and it's summarizing things. And now Isaac dies. And this brief account of Isaac's death and burial mirrors the death and burial of Abraham earlier, Genesis 25, and the way it's described. And again... Jacob and Esau are still reconciled. They together bury their father. Abraham had died now in the promised land, and now Isaac dies in the promised land. We find out elsewhere he was buried in the same cave of Machpelah where his father was buried. And uh, it reminds us again of Hebrews 11, verse 13, speaking of these patriarchs. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had such wonderful promises for the future from God, but for the most part, they didn't own much of any land. They wandered from place to place. They were not at home in the land of Canaan. As Hebrews tells us, ultimately they looked for a heavenly country. But they died in faith, trusting the promises, but not having fully received the promises. And they are examples to us in that way. Now let me, let me remind you of the big idea I said at the beginning. Renewed consecration to God brings assurance in the midst of trouble. So how do we apply a text like this? Well, four things. First of all, the first two things I want to, to apply here have to do with Bethel. And that picture of Jacob's family preparing themselves to go to Bethel and then actually arriving there and God showing up. First of all, the ascent to God's house Going up to God's house demands consecration. I already stressed this earlier, but you must be consecrated to God in order to properly approach Him. Consecration and holiness demand purification. Jacob said his household had to purify themselves. Are there idols that you have to bury today? Maybe you came into worship somewhat unprepared. Maybe your heart was not properly soft towards the Lord. And if you search your heart, you might know why. 
Maybe you think you want to be devoted to the Lord, but there's something else that's competing for devotion in one area of life. Maybe it's a friendship or relationship you want to hang on to at all costs. Maybe it is certain promises of the world out there that say, well, I think I want to be a Christian and serve God, but I also really want this one thing. If I could just have this thing, I could be happy. I don't know what idols you are tempted to worship, to give utmost devotion to when, it, when your utmost devotion should belong to the Lord alone. But you might have to bury some idols today to really be right with God. And I know this is a patriarchal setting. This is a unique time in the history of God's people. So it's not that everything... Uh, applies just in exactly the same way. And yet, I want to point out, Jacob is a good example of leading his household in godliness and in true worship. Jacob isn't just talking to himself. He talks to his household and he says, put away the foreign gods. Stop this double-mindedness. And men, if we are truly consecrated to the Lord ourselves, we will urge our families in God's ways. <laughs> do we do that? Are we even comfortable bringing up spiritual things to our families? Does our family know that we are sincere in our consecration? Flawed, <clears throat> flawed though we are, that we're sincere in our consecration so that we even have a voice with them in the things of God. We need to think about that. Besides just idolatry, what sort of cleansing do you need to seek today? What sort of purity do you lack? It's all there for you in Christ if you come to Christ for cleansing. We're not saying righteousness by works. We're not saying that sort of clean yourself up and then come to God. Because this is all of grace. The way we can rightly approach God is by having him cleanse us first. <laughs> but Psalm 24 is serious when it says this in verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, like fake gods, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You must have clean hands and a pure heart. Or else, if you seek God, but, but with impure hands and an impure heart, as God says to Israel elsewhere, my hand isn't shortened and it cannot save, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So the ascent to God's house demands consecration. Secondly, the ascent to God's house yields assurance. Going up to God's house yields assurance. The consecration is worth it because there's nothing like meeting with God and having him give you his great and precious promises and impressing them upon your heart once again. You know, that's part of what we're doing every, day, every week when we come here on the Lord's Day. We come into God's presence. Sometimes we don't come quite as we ought, but we come... And God in grace, maybe he has to clean us up. Well, I should wear that differently. He always has to clean us up to some degree. But he receives us in Jesus Christ. And he reminds us, my promises are still true for you. I've still drawn you near by my grace. Christ still is yours. You are still his. 
The ascent to God's house yields assurance. When Israel and his household sought God afresh at Bethel, God appeared again to reaffirm his earlier promises. And they needed that assurance for their future, their further journeys. There was trouble just around the bend for Jacob. He needed to be strong in his faith. His, he didn't know it. His wife was about to die. His family was about to be ripped apart again by his, one of his son's actions. He needed to be firm, knowing that God was with him. Psalm 84 expresses a, a proper longing for being in God's presence and being reassured yet again of what he offers us, what he is for the believer. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow, that, that, what's about to happen here is the, the psalmist envies the little birds that can always live at God's house. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, some have translated that the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? Last two verses of the psalm. For the Lord God is a sun, S-U-N, a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor, or it's been translated grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Go look at Psalm 73 sometime yourself and see again how the psalmist Asaph began to doubt God's promises until he went into God's sanctuary. He began to envy the wicked until he went into the sanctuary of God and then discerned their end. I will read the, the last two verses of Psalm 73. Asaph says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Last two points of application. As we think about Jacob's further journeys. This pilgrim life is full of death and evil. How's that for an encouraging application? This pilgrim life is full of death and evil. Later, when Jacob, as an old man, went to Egypt and stood before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? How many are the years of your life? Here's what Jacob said. He said to Pharaoh, Genesis 47, 9, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Now listen to what he says. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. What are you talking about, Jacob? You belong to God. You have his promises. Was this appropriate for Jacob to... Say, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life? Yeah, it was. He was just being honest. This life is hard, even as a believer. Do not think that being in God's house and being assured in Christ will free you from death, sorrow, and affliction. Israel was still a sojourner. He was still a pilgrim on the earth. And some of his greatest sorrows occurred shortly after his wonderful consecration at Bethel. Have you experienced that sometimes? You thought you'd hit a mountaintop spiritually. 
and I'm experiencing grace and glory, and then you're cut down. That's not because God lost control. That's to remind you this world is not your home. That's to remind you your race isn't run yet. You still need endurance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What glory that in the gospel we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the very face of Jesus Christ. But what does he say next? But we have this treasure in, in jars of clay, in these earthen vessels, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So a little further down, verse 16, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And sometimes evil arises from those close to us, even in our own families. Israel's own son violated him terribly. And we must not think it strange when we as God's covenant people fare no better. God did not promise us anything different. He's still with us. We even read some words of our Lord Jesus in the, the scripture reading from Luke today. Um, and he says similar things elsewhere. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And Jesus there is quoting Micah 7, which similarly says, Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. And this is in the, the context of just reckoning with the treachery that goes on in this world. Guard the doors of your mouth from who, her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, Micah says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Last point of application, and you've been very patient. Last point is that these pilgrim sorrows will be rewarded. Rachel's dying sorrow is revisited later as an expression of the despair to which God's suffering people are tempted. Yes, there must be sorrow. Yes, this is a fallen world of tragedy. Yes, God's own discipline of his people has to sometimes be severe. But the end of the story will wipe away Rachel's tears. Remember that text in Jeremiah 31? A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And in the context that's being applied to the death and captivity which the Israelites are experiencing, even though they're God's people. The next verse says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. 
I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. And later he says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. I'm wrapping this up rather quickly here. But that same chapter, Jeremiah 31, introduces the new covenant because that's how God will have mercy on his people. That's how the tears of his people will be wiped away. Because God will change hearts and forgive sins through the new covenant of grace. And the result of sin forgiven will be the the death of death itself. So, as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah put it, Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Do you know the one who will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people? Are you covenanted to him and his son Jesus Christ? Jesus came as a man of sorrows. He was born into a world of sorrow. He was better acquainted with grief than any of us. But it was through his mortal suffering, his death on the cross in the place of sinners, that God exalted Jesus as the one who would crush death, who would make death die. He would be the death of death and hell's destruction. Jesus is alive forevermore. He has the keys of death and Hades. He's reigning from God's right hand. Though he was a son of sorrow, he is the son of God's right hand now. And the last enemy he will destroy is death. And on that day, all these sufferings will be worth it. On that day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will rise from the grave. Rachel too, I believe. They'll feast with us in the kingdom of God, in new heavens and a new earth. And the heavenly city will descend to the earth, the city for which they sought all their lives. And the tabernacle of God will be among men. God's house will be with us. No more pilgrim days. No more wanderings in a world full of evil and death. God's people will be forever home with the Lord. But will you be part of that countless throng? Will your tears now be wiped away then? Come to God through his Son. This world is full of sorrow, but if you're outside of Christ, you will not have a reward for your sufferings in this life. Only in Christ can you overcome Sin, suffering, death, the grave. Because you're a sinner and you deserve nothing good from God. But Christ is a great Savior. And if you come to him and are ready to get rid of your idols and just trust in him, you will have eternal life. And one day God will wipe every... One day God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And your sufferings will be worth it. But that's only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Pray that the the messenger won't get in the way of the message today. 
taken a while to unwrap this text and then apply it. But Lord, help us to follow in the footsteps of faith that we see laid out in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Help us to know the Savior they knew and trusted in. Help us to be consecrated to you as we ought to be. And to be assured in you as we approach you. Help us not to be shaken by the troubles of this present life, even when they are tragic. May we know that our hope in Christ will not be put to shame, but one day death will be swallowed up in victory. But Lord, if there are those here today who just think that somehow they're going to have a good life on their own terms without Jesus, Lord, please change their hearts. Show them that they need the Savior. And for those of us in Christ, give us joy today and assurance and peace. We pray this in his name. Amen.